United States Air Force Jack veteran Dave the lawyer introduces you to super interesting and informative people you won't find anywhere else. I want you to listen very, very carefully. All right, we should be recording. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for joining in the Dave the Lawyer podcast. How are you tonight? Doing well. Thank you for having me. That's a nice background. Is that your home? Yeah, I'm at my uh, home office right now. This is where the, the meat of the real history gets done, I'm guessing, in that chair back there. Actually, I have another office that uh, is in a different building, and that's where the real work gets done because my wife uh, allows doesn't allow me to be quite as uh, uh, reckless with having books and maps all over the place. <laughs> my, my office and my conference room are littered with books and maps. That's nice. Kind of like the uh, Indiana Jones, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, I'd like to go ahead and get started and let you introduce the audience and who you are and tell us how you got involved in being a history buff. Uh, my name's Jim McDougall. I live in St. Petersburg, Florida. I moved here in uh, 1999. And uh, one of the first guys I met over in Tampa, uh, when he met me, he said, oh, you're from St. Pete. And I said, yeah. And he said, oh, that's where the first uh, inland exploration of the United States began. And I said, what? And he said, yeah, the Narvaez expedition. I said, I've never heard of that. And uh, he said, yeah, it was uh, quite an expedition. They landed in St. Petersburg, 300 of them, and only four survived uh, out of the 300. And the four who survived walked all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And one of the four was a slave from Africa named Estevanico. And uh, he later discovered Arizona and New Mexico, a black slave from Morocco. And uh, I said, how could I not know this? And they said, well, now do, do some homework. So I started getting interested in, in uh, the West Florida coastal history, and I started with the Narvaez expedition. And I ended up writing a book about it, really not so much about the expedition, but really proving where the expedition landed. Uh, because if you don't know where it landed, you don't have any sense of place. And uh, you need that. You need to be able to say, this is where it happened. So I wrote a book basically reinforcing what the other historians had done, uh, that the Narvaez expedition landed here on Boca Ciega Bay uh, in today's St. Petersburg. Can you do me a favor and just pull that mic away from your mouth, just a hair, because you're getting some popping sounds? Okay. Is that maybe, better? Maybe a little bit closer, about halfway between. Okay, how about that? That sounds good. Thanks. Sure. So you, you just taught me something that I can't believe I didn't know. Uh, there's so much to, is a, to talk about in what you just said. Explain to me, if you would, how is it possible that they walked to the Pacific Ocean, and how is it possible that we most people don't know that? How is it possible we don't know about it? Well, that's because history books are written in the Northeast, you know, by yeah. by the Europeans. So everybody thinks uh, the, uh, uh, the the original exploration settlement of what we know as the United States all started in Jamestown, Virginia, and uh, Plymouth, to Massachusetts, and so forth. But in fact, the Spanish were here about a hundred years before that. Um, in fifteen thirteen, Ponce de Leon discovered Florida. 1521, he tried to set up a settlement here. Uh, 1528, Narvaez, the guy I'm talking to you about, 
came here with his 300 men. Uh, in 1539, uh, Hernando de Soto came here, the de Soto exploration expedition. That one lasted four years and uh, went 4,000 miles, biggest exploration. Um, and they all happened before Jamestown and Plymouth and so forth. Um, we just don't know much about the Spanish heritage uh, of our country. And uh, I got fascinated by it because I live here. And by doing some research into the Narvaez expedition, I learned how little we know about the, uh, the first explorers to come to this country. And uh, they're fascinating stories. Uh, they came here. They sailed 4,000 miles from Spain uh, to the Indies, to the islands in the Indies. And then from there, they set to explore the mainland. And Florida is one of the places, and Mexico is the other, uh, that were the first places they tried to settle. There's just so much to talk about in the, what you just said, though. So is this considered historical fact that the first landing in what we now call the United States was by Ponce de Leon? Oh, yes. Yeah. He's considered to be the, dis the, the first, the discoverer of Florida and thus the discoverer of what we now know as the United States. That was the first place he f found. But actually, there were those who came here before him because uh, Columbus discovered the Bahamas right. in 1492. Uh, by 1513, there had been about 500 ships from Spain that had come here. Um, and uh, so since they knew where the Bahamas were, they were sailing all over the place. They discovered uh, Columbus just made four journeys over here. Everybody knows that his first trip was in 1492, and he came here with the Nina, the Penta, and the Santa Maria, and he went back and told the Spanish he'd found the Indies. Uh, what most people don't know is that about eight months later, he came back with 17 ships and 1,200 people and set up the first settlements uh, uh, on Hispaniola. And, uh, and they for later, the listener, will you clarify what Hispaniola is, please? Oh, that's the island of Hispaniola is where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are today. Uh, and they started settling and conquering and settling Cuba, Puerto Rico, Jamaica, and then going over to the mainland. Uh, they found uh, Balboa, discovered the Pacific Ocean. You know, he sailed over there in, uh, 15, in 1513. Um, and... Uh, the Pacific Ocean they discovered in 1513? Yes. So they yeah. had to sail beyond the Cape, right? They actually sailed here to, to, the, to Hispaniola. Uh, and then uh, they, were, they were sailing all over the place. There were hundreds of ships over the 20 years between the time Columbus discovered the Indies and, 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 and Balboa discovered the Pacific. Um, so they had discovered all the islands and a lot of places on the mainland. But Balboa crossed the Isthmus of Panama and discovered the Pacific Ocean in 1513. So he had to uh, cross by land because there's no Panama, yes. Panama Canal. Yes. That must he have had, been an insane endeavor to do something like and that. And he heard about that from the Indians. Wow. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, okay to use that term now. You don't have to say Native Americans all the time, both because they use the term Indians and, and, and we're usually using their books as reference. Uh, but the Museum of the American Indian, there was a big debate when they created that as to what to call it. And they decided that uh, calling it an Indian, after all, is okay. So um, the Indians are the ones who told uh, Balboa that there was another sea 
uh, on the other uh, across the uh, isthmus of Panama. So he went over there and discovered it. Uh, he told the people back in Spain about it, and they were excited, and they made him a governor of that area. Uh, a couple of years later, they sent another guy over who claimed he was a traitor, and they cut his head off. So the guy that discovered the Pacific Ocean was beheaded a couple of years later. It's a rough times. I, I was noticing brushing up on my reading because you haven't read about this type of history in a couple decades, but reading up on it, I was remembering that most of these stories don't end well for these guys. No, none of them end well. As a matter of fact, you know, we're getting back to Florida and Ponce de Leon. Um, he was uh, one of the original people that came over in 1493 on Columbus's second expedition, and he became the governor of Puerto Rico. Um, and meanwhile, Christopher Columbus died, and uh, uh, his son went back to Spain and said, I want to be the viceroy because that's a hereditary title. And they argued about it for quite a few years, but ultimately in 1511, the king agreed that you know, his son could be viceroy. So when his son came back, he took poor Ponce de Leon, who was a governor of Puerto Rico, and demoted him. So Ponce de Leon went to the king and said, hey, I want lands of my own. And the king said, go, there's some island out there called Bimini. Uh, go find it, and anything else you can find, you can have. You can be the governor of that. So Ponce de Leon discovered La Florida, Florida in 1513, went back to Spain, said, I found it. And they said, okay, you're the governor of it. They made him the governor of, of La Florida. Really? And it, and it was years before he finally got around to actually trying to set a settlement up. Um, and in 1521, he got a couple of ships and a couple of hundred people and a bunch of horses, and he came somewhere on the west coast of Florida and established the first settlement in what is now the United States in 1521. It lasted about three months, and he got in a huge fight with the Indians, um, and he got wounded, and his colony abandoned the colony, and they took him to Cuba, and he died. Uh, and people have never found out where was that settlement? Where did he settle? Where was the first settlement in the United States, the first colony established? And historians have generally agreed, almost all of them, that they don't know where, but it was probably somewhere near Charlotte Harbor, which is about 80 to 90 miles south of here on the coast for those who aren't Floridians. Um, and uh, and let me now, just interrupt, if I may, for non-Floridians. It's in between Sarasota and Fort Myers, correct? Yes, that's right. Okay. Go on, please. Uh, so uh, uh, when I was doing the research on the Narvaez expedition, which is an amazing story, you know, they landed here, th 300 uh, uh, men uh, and 40 horses, and they headed north along the coast, uh, fighting Indians all the way. And when they got up to the curve, uh, uh, where the where it starts to head west, they built boats and they sailed about 800 miles along the coast. Uh, and a storm hit, and uh, by then there were only 60, 70 of them left out of the 300 who washed ashore. And the Indians killed a lot of them and made slaves of many of them. Six years later, there were only four left alive: uh, a guy named Cabeza de Vaca, two other Spaniards, and a slave named Estevanico. So they escaped and they headed out into the West and they were the first black man and the first white man to see the American West. Um, and uh, they kept walking until they got to the Pacific ocean. 
And it's uh, just incredible. I mean, it's yeah. just incredible. Yeah, and then so they, the whole they, Lewis and Clark thing, like the whole narrative that the rest of us learn is that Lewis and Clark were the first ones to make their way across the continent. Yeah, and that was in eighteen oh three. And you're talking and about in the fifteen hundreds. We're talking about fifteen twenty. 1528 uh, at, at, at to 1534. Uh, they were on their little survival journey. And when they got to Mexico, when they got to the west coast of Mexico, they ran into some Spanish slavers uh, that were up, had come up there by ship up the west coast, and uh, they were catching Indians as slaves. And uh, uh, Cabeza de Vaca uh, told them he couldn't do that. He said, I'm the, I'm now the number one guy because Narvaez died. So I was number two and now I'm the governor. You can't do slavery anymore. Where are the rest of the Spaniards? And they said, they're down in Mexico city, a thousand miles South of here. So, uh, they walked down there another thousand miles and they got to Mexico city where the Spanish, uh, empire was being built. Tenochtitlan. And Tenochtitlan, Cortez had, had taken it over, and uh, they got down there, and they said, we heard that up north, we didn't see them, but we heard from the Indians that there are seven cities of Cibola, seven cities of gold up there. And uh, we weren't in any mood to go looking for it, because we'd been on the road for eight years, and walked about 4,000 miles, uh, but that's what we heard. So uh, a couple of years later, the Viceroy of Mexico uh, took that black slave named Estevanico and hired him to go find the seven cities of gold. So Estevanico led another expedition, this one going 2,000 miles north from Mexico City, and was the first non-native to enter Arizona and New Mexico. A black slave from Morocco discovered Arizona and New Mexico. And uh, when he got up to Zuni, which is near Albuquerque, uh, it was his bad luck that the Zuni religion believed that there was an evil sorcerer that was black. And he was the first black person they had ever seen. So they killed him. Mm, and uh, so he died there. Cabeza de Vaca, one of the other survivors, went back to Spain. And he wrote the first book ever published about North America. He published in 1542 called mm. The Relation, The Relacion. And he described the Indians and the, the animals and the, and the bison for the first time. So it's quite an exciting and important uh, expedition no one knows about. Does, 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 does those writings survive today? Can we read those? Yes, you can actually buy the Relacion translated into English, uh, which is the report he gave to the king when he uh -huh. got there in 1537. Uh, describing where he went and what he did and what happened. Um, but, the, but the part that fascinated me about it is when he landed in Boca Ciega Bay in 1528, he went for an inland walk headed north, and he ended up, which is where is now located old Tampa Bay. And uh, when he got there, he found a whole bunch of cargo boxes uh, and, and a bunch of European artifacts. Uh, and then he went on with his journey. But he wrote that in his book. And when I was writing about it, I said, I wonder if the European artifacts that he found in all those cargo boxes could have been from the Ponce de Leon expedition that had landed somewhere and nobody knew where it was. Uh, so I decided I'd try to find out since nobody had ever 
found out about it. One of the books that I'd gotten had a map in it. It was a map drawn in 1527. And it had on it, I, I got about a magnifying glass and looked at it and had on it a thing called the Bay of Juan Ponce. Well, that was Ponce de Leon's name, Juan Ponce de Leon. So I decided to go find that map, the real original of that map, and uh, took a year. Uh, there are loads and loads and loads of books about maps going back hundreds of years, and they don't show the maps. They just talk about them. There's one book that talks about 250 maps. It doesn't show one of them because you can't take a map that's you know, two feet by three feet or six feet by three feet and put it in a book. Uh, so uh, the books about maps don't have maps in them, which is cr really crazy. But every once in a while, I'd find a book that had a map in it of the west coast of Florida, but it had been reduced to such a scale to, to get it into the book that you couldn't read anything and in the names on it. So I said, I've got to find a real, a real copy of, or, or a real map from 1527 or 1528. Uh, and I found out that a German in 1860 had been given permission to copy a 1527 map and a 1529 map. And he'd written a book about them, a 160,000 word book. That's a lot of words. The average book is maybe 30 or 40,000. He wrote a 160,000 word book about two maps. And then he had the maps copied to each is two feet by three feet, folded up and stuck in back of the book. So I decided I'd try to find that book. And I found out that there's only 45 of them in the world and they're in libraries or university collections. And I wanted, I wanted to get my hands on one. So I kept my search engine running. And one day I found a rare book dealer that had that book for sale for $3,000. So I went online, gave him my American Express card, and a couple of weeks later, I got this huge book in the mail, opened it up, opened up the maps, two feet by three feet in size each, and uh, they were beautiful. They were absolutely gorgeous. This and, is an uh, actual copy of the book from the yeah, 1600s? From, no, this is an 1860 oh, sorry, book you did say that. Where he made the maps copied the 1527 and a 1529 map exactly but back in those days you had to have a person copy them draw them and they are very very beautiful and uh so i got the maps and i brought them to an engineering firm that had the capacity to to scan something of that size two feet by three feet so i had them scanned and uh, once you've got them scanned and digitized, you can blow them up. You can enlarge them. So I enlarged them, and I saw all these names on the maps. Uh, and I was looking at Florida, and I found on both of them, I found the Bay of Juan Ponce. But I found that the maps had latitude scales on them. So I had big, huge black and white enlargements made, and I got a drafting table with one of those drafting tables with a built-in ruler on it. And I measured the latitudes of all the places named on the maps, the Bay of Juan Ponce, a place called the Rio de la Paz, uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, different places. And then I compared those latitudes with what the GPS latitudes of those places are. And they're within two or three tenths of a degree of what GPS latitude of those places are. It's incredible. On the map, for example, the Bay of Juan Ponce is at 27.4 degrees. 
the actual GPS latitude of the midpoint of the entrance is 27.5 degrees. And, and what does that translate in, in feet or yards or miles? Uh, One-tenth of a degree is about seven miles. There's nothing. And you're talking about guys in the 1500s looking at stars, calculating their position that accurately. It's incredible. But I found that the, that the latitude on the maps for the Bay of Juan Ponce was the latitude of Tampa Bay. And I found on the map that south of here, hmm. they had a thing called the Rio de la Paz. Well, there's a river down there called the Peace River. And I said, I wonder if that's where the name, the Peace River, came from. Wow. So I bought a whole bunch of maps, and I finally found a map that was drawn in 1851, 350 years later, that had that river, Paz River. <laughs> so... That I was able to determine that the Spanish never identified Charlotte Harbor as a harbor. They identified it as the Peace River. The only thing on the map that was identified as a harbor was the Bay of Juan Ponce. So I basically determined, and there's a lot more into it, a lot of maps, there's 35 in my book, um, that the Bay of Juan Ponce was Tampa Bay and Charlotte, what we know as Charlotte Harbor. Uh, was known by them as the Rio de la Paz. And the way it got its name, the Peace River, is that when Ponce de Leon first came to Florida in 1513, he immediately got in a battle with the Indians. But, and they killed one of the Spaniards, and he killed four of the Indians. And instead of getting out of Dodge, what he did was he found that they had some gold. So he decided he was going to try to make a peace treaty with the, with the chief to find out where the gold was. So he set up a meeting for the next day, a peace meeting, at another river, and they went to that other river, and they were attacked by 80 canoes, Indians and 80 canoes with bows and arrows. So that's when they decided to get out of town. And the interesting thing is that on the maps that I found, the southernmost river is called the Peace River. The river just north of it is called the River of Canoes, and then north of that is the Bay of Juan Ponce. So I determined that what happened is the first time that he came to Florida, he was down south at what we call Charlotte Harbor, Peace River. But when he came back to settle in 1521, he didn't want to go there. He came up here to Tampa Bay. And I, I believe specifically old Tampa Bay, because that's where Narvaez found all those cargo boxes and the shoes and the iron and the cloth. Uh, that he found when he went on his expedition six years later. Which river is the river of canoes, do you think? Miaka, I think. The north, it's M-Y-A-K-K-A. -K -K the river just north of the Peace River is called the Miaka River today. And what's the next river up after that? There aren't any. That's it. So it, it, it would be... The, All the, the way next up to the Hillsborough actually, River? Yeah, up to the Hillsborough River, yeah. So, uh, that, and that would be Tampa Bay. So uh, it looks like uh, I, I gave my book a very provocative title, The, the Maps That Change Florida's History, uh, because I want it to be challenged. Uh, I'd love to have historians uh, look into this because nobody has but me. Nobody's made connected the dotted lines. You know, Narvaez is here. He finds all these cargo boxes. Nobody knows where Ponce de Leon landed. 
They've never found cargo boxes anyplace else. Isn't it logical that this would be the place? And then you find a map, and it's called the Bay of Juan Ponce, and it was drawn six years after he died. So when you put two and two together, uh, they send prison, people to prison with evidence that isn't as strong as that. So uh, 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 I'm, I'm wondering if I'll be challenged on it. It'll take a lot of work because I have 160 books on the subject, 35 maps, and I spent a year working on it. And I'm pretty prepared to take on all comers if they want to propose that it could be any place else. There just isn't any place else that fits. Well, is it? Uh, let me back up and ask you. I have a lot of questions for you. Is your profession as a historian, or is this a hobby for you? That's funny. Uh, my research has been both a hobby and a profession for me. When I was working for a living, um, I used research as a tool. Uh, I'd know more about the subject matter of my product and the com competitor's products than anybody else. I love research. Um, the uh, uh, my uncle went missing in World War II, flying a PBY in Australia. Nobody knew where he, what happened. My father didn't know where his brother, what happened to his brother. All he knows is he went in the Navy as a pilot, and he went missing. Um, so that was my first research project for my dad and his brother and his sister, who was still alive at the time. I decided to find out what happened to Eddie, and I did. I wrote about a 60-page book. I know everything about Eddie. I know what the unit he was in, all the people in the unit he served with, the plane number he flew, the, the place he left from. Uh, uh, the, the, we, we completed the picture. We know when he was lost, where he was lost, and what he was doing, who was on the plane with him, who the crew were, uh, even have pictures of the plane. So uh, uh, the next thing that I got interested in after that was I have a rare car. Nobody knows anything about it. It's called the Gia, G-H-I-A, Gia 450 SS. Nobody knew anything about the car. It's very rare. There's about 30 of them around. And uh, uh, so I thought that was kind of silly. So I wrote a 175-page book about the Gia, and now everybody knows everything about that car. Um, I talked to the people who built it, the people who designed it, and the people who put it together, and the people who sold it. And I bought magazines and, and, and from Italy and had them translated into English um, and uh, reconstructed the story of that. There aren't many people care about it, but it was fun. Then I, the next project became the Narvaez Expedition, and that's when I really got hooked, when I realized that as I talked to my friends in St. Petersburg, who have been here, one of them for five generations, never heard of the Narvaez story, never knew that the, that the first inland exploration of North America began here. They didn't know, nobody I met knew that. So I really wrote the book because I thought I could convince the city and the county to put up some kind of a monument and say, hey, this is where the first inland exploration of North America began. And one of the four who survived was a black slave from from Africa, and he discovered Arizona and New Mexico. That's a pretty big thing. Sure is. Uh, and uh, I even had a monument design of him and the chief who was here. The Indians who had lived here had lived here for 14,000 years. And we don't know anything about them because of the diseases these people brought with them killed them all. Right. So there's nobody telling their story. So I designed this monument. So let's tell their story. Let's talk about the Indians that were here for 14,000 years. Uh, we haven't been here 
anything like that period of time. You know, our country's a few hundred years old. Uh, right. And uh, so let's tell that story and let's talk tell the story of Estevanico, the, the, the slave from Africa who survived one huge expedition and led another one for 2,000 miles. And uh, I didn't get anywhere with it. Uh, so uh, uh, that project is, you know, done. Book's written. Uh, somebody else will have to take up that cause. But then I got hooked in, into trying to figure out where did the first colony in the United States get established? Uh, and that was, that's this book. That's the map book. How come nobody picked up the ball on your project? It sounds like a no-brainer. I mean, this is American history here. It is. Uh, Florida is kind of spoiled because it's it, it draws a lot of tourists. It doesn't need to put up a a mm. monument to the first flight like they have in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. Right. You know, as a half a million people a year visit that. Uh, the Pilgrims have the Plymouth Rock, uh, right? I've been to I mean, it. Yeah. Okay, well, the, I'll bet you didn't know that the Plymouth Rock, uh, there's no record of the of the Pilgrims ever seeing a rock. Uh, there's three chronicles written by people there, and none of them mention a rock. The first mention of a rock was made by a guy that said that his grandfather had told him that he had heard that that rock was the one the, Plymouth, the Pilgrims saw. None of this would be admissible in a court of law, by the way. <laughs> it's really, what's really fun is that the city there decided that it was a, a good potential tourism draw. So in 1880, mm -hmm. they carved 1620 on that rock. You have to um, be kidding me. And Yeah, they did. And the they duping built of America. A, they didn't dupe them. Uh, they just carved 1620 on it. <laughs> and then they built a cupola over it. And a million people a year visit it. And everybody in America knows about the Plymouth Rock. So that's pretty good marketing. Very um, good marketing. And uh, Florida, here we have the first inland exploration in the United States, the first colony established in the United States. And there isn't even a signpost. Um, but they draw a lot of tourists here without that. So they don't really have much in the way of, of – uh, promoting cultural heritage. They've got beaches and sand and sun and palm trees and who needs it? And history is lost because of it. And uh, uh, I don't think I'll really change anything. Uh, certainly in, in this area, more people know the story now than knew it before I got here. So that's something. I uh, don't think you should underestimate yourself. I think you're changing things quite a bit here with what you've done. Well, we'll see. The uh, uh, I was surprised that when uh, the local paper, the Tampa Bay Times, did a story so about my book about that it got picked up by the Associated Press. Congratulations. And, and I get little beeps every time my name appears someplace. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's there's newspapers in India that have published that story. And uh, uh, it pops at Kentucky, Tennessee. is going, why would some newspaper in Kentucky put that story in? But they did. So uh, – uh, that's a good thing. I don't know if it will have legs enough to get it recognized locally by Pinellas County. Pinellas County ought to be saying, wow, this is pretty cool. We have both the first inland exploration of North America began here and the first colony established in North you America. You think so. Here. You really would think so. I mean, if nothing else for the integrity of the education of the, the international crowd that come here. Well, I think as we get more, I think as we become more aware 
of that our cultural heritage of of, of the people of the of the United States isn't all European right. going to the Northeast. They wrote the history books, so uh, the history books that we have had for hundreds for a hundred years are written by people that are writing about the the people who came to Massachusetts and New York. Uh, they're not writing about what happened down in Florida. And there was about a 200-year gap. The Spanish were here in uh, 1513. Uh, they tried to set up settlements here in 1521, 1528, 1539, 1545 on the west coast of Florida, and none of them made it. The f but the first permanent settlement or colony in the United States that was established was St. Augustine, Florida in 1565. Um, and that one did make it. And it is a far, it's older than Jamestown. It's older than all those. And it's starting to get known that St. Augustine is the first permanent settlement in the United States. But the rest of it is pretty well not, not, not recognized. I think the real interesting thing about it is that when I was doing my research for the first book, uh, I, I had marine scientists help me determine what Florida looked like 500 years ago because I'm a sailor. I've sailed up and down the coast. I've been in every bay and harbor that supposedly the Spanish came to. And it's very shallow. Yes, the west coast of Florida is incredibly shallow. Uh, but I didn't know what it looked like 500 years ago. So uh, I actually... I actually hired a marine science team from the University of South Florida uh, to reconstruct uh, the geology of the uh, and the coast of, of West Coast Florida 500 years ago. And uh, when I first went to them, they said, "We'll save you some money." And I said, "How's that?" And they said, "It's just like it is today. It hasn't changed for 2,000 years. The sea level hasn't risen or fallen by more than one foot in the last thousand years." Um, the geology is the same. The coast is the same. Tampa Bay is the same. Charlotte Harbor is the same. The only thing you're going to find different 500 years ago than today is where these little small barrier islands are. They move around with hurricanes. You know, that'll be sand will move from one place to another. But the basic geology and the water depth doesn't change. Well, once you recognize that, you realize why the Spanish never were successful in setting up settlements on the west coast of Florida. Their ships drew 12 to 14 feet. Well, you've got to be about a mile or two offshore. That's where you got to anchor. You can't get ashore with those boats. So you have to have everything you got, put it in small boats and take the small boats ashore. And you can't really overcome Indians that are attacking you if you're bringing guys ashore 15 or 14 or 15 at a time in small boats. So, uh, this just isn't a place that you can bring in a big ship. Uh, and settlements require a lot of big ships. And so the bottom line, why they never settled the west coast of Florida is there's no ports here. Tampa Bay is the only one, and even it, it's very difficult to get into because of the barrier islands that surround its mouth. So they went elsewhere. And it is very shallow. I've spent thousands of hours in the Tampa Bay waters. I mean, you can sometimes jump out and be up to your waist. You can't tell how deep it is, and that's another danger. Yes, it's, uh, you know, Charlotte Harbor is only 12 to 14 feet deep on average. So um, one of the things that, that we 
that, that I put in my book that I felt was very important. Historians don't go to marine scientists and ask them for help. Uh, and when I went to the marine scientists, they were really excited about it. They said, oh, you're a historian that wants our opinion on something? And I said, yeah, I want to know what the coast looked like 500 years ago. And they said, well, we've never been asked. But we've often wondered why we've never been asked, because all these theories they have about where these ships sailed, they couldn't have sailed. So I said, okay, let's get going. So I have a, a whole section in my book about, about uh, navigation and about the coast of Florida as it, as it existed 500 years ago, written by a professor as, as an appendix to my book. Um, but that, that explains why uh, the Spanish never really settled on the west coast of Florida. Two problems. You couldn't get close to shore, uh, and, the, and the natives were hostile. They were hostile, and they were good. And, and uh, they talk about the conquistadors, you know, the conquerors. Well, on the west coast of Florida, there weren't any conquerors. Uh, if there were any conquerors, it was the Indians who conquered the Spanish because the Spanish landed four different times with four expeditions, and they got their rear end handed to them on every one of them by, by, the, by the climate, by the, by the uh, le water level, and by the Indians. And, and, and I read, which I thought was interesting, too, Ponce de Leon got shot by a poison arrow, right? Yes, right. he did. Yes. Uh, and it was a poison from some tree, which I'd never heard of, but I'm guessing it's a native tree around here. And so they, he got shot in the leg, and then they sailed him back to Havana to try to save him? Yeah. What happened is they landed here. And now, uh, I believe uh, I've made the case pretty well that they landed here in what is today Safety Harbor. It used to be known as Tocobaga, um, and uh, there's big, big mounds there that you can see in Felipe Park. And I uh, want to that, talk to you about those too. Okay, that, oh. that was those were the that was they're called middens, uh, they're shell mounds, and some of them are burial mounds, and some of them are just shell mounds. They're, they're two different kinds. Um, some of them are just built where they could put the chief's house on top of it, and other of them are sacred burial mounds. Um, the uh, Safety Harbor where Ponce de Leon set up the first settlement. He lasted about three months. Um, so things, things worked out all right for a while. And I suspect what happened, and, and I didn't put this in my book, but um, the, uh, one of the interesting things I found is that the guys, these conquistadors, these soldiers that came over, these hundreds and hundreds of Spanish men were young men, 20, 25 years old. They land here, and the first thing they do is they take all the women. Uh, which doesn't make the native men very happy. So mm -hmm. that's a, it's an it's it's an automatic uh, friction immediately. Why did they um, do that? To take them as slaves, to make them their wives? Why they took they... them as to use them as women, and they mm -hmm. and they treated them as 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 a conquistador would. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had guns, they had guns, they had crossbows, uh -huh. they had cannons. Um, so they'd sail into a bay and fire their cannons off. And, I mean, it's it a pretty shocking mismatch. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the problems was that, that never gets talked about, is the fact that these are young men, and they land in a place with a whole bunch of women, and there's going to be problems immediately there. Um, and uh, uh, the other one is that they're looking for gold. I mean, it's, that's the reason they came here. So uh, uh, they're, they're, uh, they're not trying to grow strawberries. I mean, these guys are coming here for, to get rich. 
so it isn't like the the, the 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 vision you have of the settler out west with you know a couple of mules and his kids and he's gonna go till the ground uh, that isn't really what these guys came here for these guys came here to get rich and uh to find gold and in mexico they were finding literally tons of it in Peru, tons and tons of gold. They spent about 300 years, the Spanish did, taking gold out of South America and Central gold and silver. 300 years. I used to be chairman of a, of a, a company called Odyssey Marine Exploration. We found treasure ships. We found, we found several. Um, but one that we found sank in 1803. Now think about this: the Spanish first started looting Mexico in 1519, okay, and in South America. This is now 1803. That ship that sank had 17 tons of silver coins on it. It's almost 300 years later; they were still taking that much gold and silver out of the New World. So. Uh, the it's it's almost inconceivable how much gold and silver Spain took out of uh, Central America and and northern South America over a 250 year period. Not just the the gold that they found and the silver that they found, but what the the gold that they mined and the silver that they mined for the next several hundred years. Yeah, and a real travesty also is they would take the sacred the sacred carvings and designs of the jewelry and then melted down and yeah yeah they uh, lost all that that artwork it was just gold you know so uh yeah it was but they didn't find any in florida and that was another reason they didn't ever uh really work at establishing something here is every time somebody landed and they'd think they would find gold a they'd end up dead and b the few survivors would come back and say we don't have any gold the first four expeditions to come here that were led by by big wheels uh, all four of those expedition leaders died on the expedition. Ponce de Leon in 1521, he died. Um, Narvaez came here in 1528, he died. He, he ended up getting as far as, as Galveston Island, Texas before he died, but he died. Um, De Soto died. De Soto landed here in 1539. Uh, biggest expedition to ever explore North America. It was 4,000 miles and, 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 and four years long. He died uh, somewhere in Louisiana uh, on that one. So uh, uh, these these big wheels that came here, these governors that, that, that came here with these big expeditions, they all ended up dead. And uh, the people that survived didn't come home with any gold. So uh, Florida got ignored for the next 200 years, 250 years. Nothing really happened here. It was the dark ages of Florida. There's really no history. Uh, the Spanish stopped coming here in, in the west coast of Florida in the mid-1500s. And next thing we know is mid-1700s is when the Indians from uh, north of Florida started coming down into Florida uh, and uh, the few remaining original tribes that were here, uh, they intermarried and became the Seminole Nation. And then from the late 1700s into the early 1800s, you start hearing of development, but you don't really hear anything happening in Florida from the mid-1500s to the mid-1700s at all. It's just a blank spot in history. You glossed over something that could be its own podcast interview for three hours, the Odyssey Marine thing. I'm familiar with it, but 
I'm sure the audience would love to hear an overview of what you did on that. The Odyssey Marine is an amazing story. Yeah, that was fun. Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the company had a one guy that knew something about mar marine technology, uh, side scan sonar, things like that. And another one knew quite a bit about history. And they got together and they decided that they were going to uh, find ships that were in deep water uh, that couldn't have been found or recovered before. And uh, that they would uh, uh, make an arrangement if they decided to search for a ship they would find out first of all who has a claim to it uh usually an insurance company has paid a claim on that it might be 200 years ago but what happens is when you find a treasure ship everybody comes out of the woodwork and says i own a piece of it so uh, uh they said well, when we go look for a ship the first thing we're going to do is we're going to find out what insurance company paid the claim on that ship and then you have to do a lot of research to track that the insurance company doesn't exist anymore because it got bought by another one, which got bought by another one, so forth. But when you can bring the chain forward to today, you end up saying, here's the insurance company that if we found that ship would have a claim on it, let's make a deal with them before we start looking wow. for it. Yeah, that's so that's smart. what we did. So when we found the Republic uh, off the coast of South Carolina uh, that was sank in 1865, uh, that we took 48,000 U.S. silver coins and 4,000 U.S. gold coins up from. We had already uh, settled with the insurance company before we even began to look for it. So there's never any, any claim about that. Um, the first ship we looked for sank off Gibraltar. Uh, so we, that was the first one we looked for, and we found it uh, off about nine miles off Gibraltar. It sank in 1684. Uh, and we picked up a cannon because we couldn't identify the ship, so we wanted to get a cannon. So we did the largest, the deepest recovery of a cannon ever done. We picked up a about a 2,000-pound cannon from about 1,800 feet deep. How did you pull uh, that off? It wasn't easy uh, because our remote-operated vehicle that we had had a claw on it the size of your hand, and it was about two feet by three feet. So how do you pick up a, a cannon with that? You can't. So these guys, very imaginative, what they did was they had a winch with very heavy wire on it, and they lowered with a weight. They lowered the wire down a couple of thousand feet with a noose at the end of it. And then they sent down the little remote-operated vehicle with its little claw, and the little claw took the noose over and put the noose over the canoe, over the cannon, and then said, haul away wow. and the guy operating the wrench turned it on and the noose closed over the cannon and up she came so uh, uh that that was an exciting uh experience uh they ended up finding quite a few ships after i left uh after i retired again uh, and uh uh it's a fun it's a fun business it's underwater archaeology uh and and it's hard to do archaeology on land uh, you can't imagine how difficult it is to do underwater because you don't really know where you are when the remote operated vehicle is down at the bottom. You know, it's pitch black, got a little light. So you can see what it sees, but you don't know where it is in yeah. relation to anything else. And also sand ends up burying it over hundreds of years. Yeah. So what you do is you have a archaeologist aboard who is actually sketching 
So as, as this little can, it's this little cameras taking pictures of this ground, the guy is actually sketching what it sees, mm-hmm. and and he ultimately has a drawing of of what's there, um, and then you know where to look for the next time uh, because you know you have to go back and forth to the same place day after day after day, uh, and uh, uh, it it's a it's a very interesting business and one that also requires a lot of research because you, it cost back in those days, it cost about $20,000 a day uh, to have a research vessel with crew uh, out there. And uh, you don't want to spend a month uh, and not find something, you know, it's at least $600,000 just to spend four weeks looking for something. Um, so you've really got to do your homework to make sure that where you're going to look is a place that you're likely to find what you're looking for. And uh, you do know that you're going to find a lot of stuff that you're not looking for. And we did. When we were in the Mediterranean, we found one ship that sank 2,000 years ago. Wow. Uh, we could identify the, the uh, amphora. We had an archaeologist aboard, and he can identify the amphora. We found another ship that had pithoids on it. And we sent, took pictures of them and videos and sent them to archaeologists all around the world, and nobody could identify them. And nobody knew, knew how old they are. They know they're more than 2,500 years old. They don't know any more about them than that. And the, and, and the bottom was littered with them. So uh, uh, you really have to keep focused in order not to get distracted with all this cool stuff that you discover. As we did off South Carolina, we found a ship that had sunk that where the bottom was as far as you could see was Chinese blue and white China. Uh, So, but that isn't what we were looking for. It doesn't have Uh, any value though. Even the chip does, but it it does, but we we were looking for a ship that had gold coins and silver coins on it and uh, not not a bunch of plates. So we recorded the location, um, but we, you know, we weren't going to, I mean, picking up from 2000 feet of water, Picking up a plate is not an easy task. You know, it's, it's difficult. Picking up a coin is not an easy task. And there's 48,000 coins. Think of that, that silver ones. And, and uh, so it takes a lot of time. It's expensive because you don't want to scratch them. So you have to have a way to pick them up where you won't scratch them. And then you have to get them up to the top. So uh, you find interesting things, bottles. Every wreck has bottles and various artifacts that are picked up because you're using them to try to find out, is this the ship we're looking for? And if the bottle was made in 1880 and you're looking for a ship that sank in 1865, you know it's not the ship you want, so you go on looking for the next one. So uh, we picked up a lot of stuff uh, off the coast of South Carolina trying to find out, you know, is this the right one? And unfortunately, we found that when we found the ship, we actually found the bell um, and that sounds almost like a you know fairy tale, but uh, we found the bell, and the bell had been covered with growth, uh, and but it, it had some of the letters you could see, and the and the letters we could see were S S E E, and we knew that the ship we were looking for, the Republic, had been in the Confederate Navy as the Tennessee. So we said, this is our ship. So, so we we stayed there, and I don't mean to interrupt, uh, but I have a burning question as an attorney trying to think this through. If it was a 
it was a warship. Isn't it considered war booty? And then a private citizen can't keep that? An idea. Well, after the South lost the war, uh, their ships were sold. And the American uh, merchant in New York bought it, renamed it the Republic. It was a private ship. Uh, and he was hired to bring money down to New Orleans. Uh, because after the Civil War, there was no money. Uh, all they had was Confederate paper money. And they needed what they call specie, you know, coins. So this ship had 50,000 of them, maybe more, but that's how many we found. And, uh, and it was $5 gold pieces, $10, $20 gold pieces, uh, half dollars, $1 silver pieces. And uh, uh, it was to put them in circulation. Uh, people made it. And the, the, the nice thing about this is, by the way, nobody died on that ship. Uh, the ship sank. The survivors uh, were picked up uh, a day or two later in lifeboats. That's how we were able to have a good idea of the position of, the, of where it sank, because we know where they picked up the survivors. And then we kind of worked backwards to where they must have where the ship must have gone down by looking at weather patterns, drift, and all that to, to kind of zero in on the area we wanted to search. Smart. That sounds like fun work trying to It was fun. Out. Yeah, it was fun. Uh, so that was a merchant ship. That's why you, you all were able to keep Yes. Keep the- now, the one we were looking for off Gibraltar wasn't a merchant ship. It was called the Sovereign Vessel. A Sovereign Vessel is a ship that belongs to a country. Um, and uh, that's a different story when you want to go retrieve one of them. Uh, there's no, no set international law in terms of who owns it. Now, the United States wants there to be international law that says if a sovereign vessel sinks, it belongs to the country that owned it wherever it sinks. Now, obviously, we want that because we've got ships all over the world, submarines, Battleships, I'm not bad, destroyers and uh, aircraft carriers, uh, aircraft. Um, we want, if something sinks anywhere in the world, we want to be able to say, stay away from it. It's ours, even though it's in your waters or international waters. So we want international law to, to, to be that way because uh, we have most at risk. That's why when an American company finds a Spanish sovereign vessel, that has 600,000 coins on it, which, which Odyssey Marine did, uh, the U.S. court said, you've got to give it back to Spain because it's their sovereign vessel. We wanted to reinforce the notion that the country that it belonged to when it sank always owns it. So uh, Odyssey was required to send 17 tons of silver coins Ooh. back to Spain <laughs> and, and didn't get paid us a, a dime. Uh, for for it, so did Odyssey uh, get to keep anything from that? Nothing, nothing, oh. absolutely nothing. So, uh, <laughs> so that so so you really, but we knew that going in. We knew that there are sovereign uh, vessels and there are commercial vessels. And uh, yeah. when we were looking for the sovereign vessel off Gibraltar, it was a British warship. So we had made a uh, a deal with Spain and with the Ministry of Defense in in in, in the UK as to what would happen if we found the ship. So that was all resolved ahead of time uh, before we went looking for it. And uh, what happened is the Spanish state uh, government decided they didn't want to honor it. So that ship is still sitting at the bottom. Uh, 
and a couple thousand feet of water off Gibraltar as it was 20 years ago. So one would think that you, someone would come up with a handshake deal to get that done. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it, uh, there's so much politics involved and so, mm. there's such a problem between Gibraltar being owned by Great Britain or uh, by the United right. Kingdom, which is on the coast of Spain. Right. So there's always, and that ship is there. So it's in water that England claims because it's off Gibraltar. Spain claims, because it's off Spain, international seafarers claim it because it's an international waterway. It's the Straits of Gibraltar. Uh, so uh, it's almost an impossible uh, political situation to resolve. And uh, we thought we had resolved it ahead of time, but it ended up not being the case. So that was a failure. Found this, the ship. This is all dictated by international maritime law, of which we're obviously signatories. Yeah, there's well, there is no maritime law dealing with this. That's the problem. There is no single law. So the United States is promoting the, the notion that a sovereign vessel belongs to the thing. And that's the way we behave when we want to be able to, if we lose a ship someplace else, we want to be able to assert a claim to that ship by proving that we have always treated other ships that were in our waters the same way. I see. Well, I hate to be too much of a legal nerd here, but what's to stop Odyssey Marine from reforming itself in Spain and saying, well, we're, we're here in Spain, make a deal with Spain and cut the U.S. out of the whole conversation? Oh, they could. They could have. They could have. The, uh, uh, the search for a sovereign vessel, it, it becomes a real almost impossible to resolve question. Let's say when a ship leaves, uh, leaves South America full of gold, mm -hmm. who does it belong to? Does it belong to the Peru? Does it belong to Spain because it was on a Spanish ship? How do we know when that ship sank that it hadn't been taken over by pirates? It happened all the time. And that it was a pirate ship that sank. So, how do you really know who really owned it at the time? Well, the U.S. court decided in this case <laughs> that Spain owned it, and uh, they get all their money back. The best thing to do if you want to get into deep water recovery and, and search businesses, don't go looking for sovereign vessels. It's just not worth it. <laughs> right. Stick to the merchant ships. Right, right. right. Well, you know, and that opens up a whole other can of worms, which is the gold itself really belonged to the Native American tribes. That's, that's, the, that's the thing that uh, you wonder, uh, where, what about, how, just how far back in the ownership path do you really go? Do you go to the king of the tribe that it was taken from, or to the sub-tribe that he took it from? Who wants to go there? It's much easier to get a commercial ship where some insurance company paid the claim <laughs> and say, we've made a deal, it's ours. See, the, the law can get interesting. Though. Yes, it can. Yes, it can. <laughs> well, you should write a book on that whole Odyssey Marine stuff because that's really fascinating. Everybody wants the, everybody, it's a, it's a seaborne Indiana Jones story. Everybody wants to do that for a while. Uh, it's not as much fun. It's a very arduous task because uh, you're dragging a side scan sonar over hundreds of square miles and looking at uh, jagged lines trying to figure out is that is that geology is that a ship is that a, something I want to come back and look at with a camera later uh, and and you you might spend the day and find 50 things uh, 
that appear as kind of blobs on your side scan sonar image, and you know their latitude and longitude, but in order to find your ship, you have to go back and anchor, not anchor, position your ship over each one of them, drop a camera down and look at it. And you might find that it's a it's it's a plane that crashed in World War II. It's a ship that sank in the 1940s or 50s, or it's a container that fell off a container ship, uh, or it's a rock. Uh, so it's 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 not as fun as it sounds uh, until you get to the point where you found the ship. Then it becomes great fun. <laughs> <laughs> so with those coins that you all were able to retrieve, the where, where can we find them now? Were they sold to museums or individual investors? Oh, I, th- I haven't been involved with Odyssey for a long time. For a while, they, were, they decided that the right thing to do would be to open up a museum-ish store and show all this stuff. So they... they uh, used modern technology, which is really fascinating. They set the cameras down to the bottom and they took pictures of the, of the, of the shipwreck, you know, every, every foot or so they'd take another picture were thousands of pictures. And then you fed it into a computer and the computer made it into one photograph. It oh, matched up all the pieces and it looks like you took one picture and you're seeing a ship 120 feet long and 50 feet wide with paddle wheels on both sides. Um, and uh, so they had that made enlarged. They had, they had high definition uh, films of the recovery of picking up the coins and all the other stuff, a lot of other stuff that came off the ship, you know, pots and pans and, and uh, bottles and uh, bottles that still had vegetables in them and fruits in them. It looked like they were taken off the store shelf yesterday. Um, And they opened the museum up in New Orleans in the French quarter the day before the the dams broke and the place Uh, flooded. So it, uh, That was the end of that. You have to be kidding me. That was lost? The day before. Some was retrieved, but out of business. There wasn't any tourism business in New Orleans for a long time after that. (laughs) So the company got, uh, I haven't been involved in a long time, but uh, uh, that was their plan. Their plan was going to be, we're going to have like a combined museum store and you can actually go buy you know, artifacts that came off the ship, a bottle or a whatever, or a coin. And uh, some of the coins they sold to rare coin dealers. We sold one $20 gold piece for $500,000. It was one of only two that was of that mint in that condition. So uh, uh, the uh, so those, you know, those get bought by the rare coin dealers. The rest of them become just gold. You know, you, you sell them for a little more than their gold value. And they did that for a while. I lost track. I I, I retired a long a long time ago. Was it the late eighties or the or the early nineties when all this happened? I don't. This remember. was in oh no, this is in early two thousands when oh, this happened. Yes, two thousand and two, three, four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they the uh, I think my when we went to uh, Gibraltar, I think it was in two thousand and two. That was the first one uh, that we looked for. Uh, after we found picked the cannon up and decided that was the ship we wanted, and we started arguing with people about how to pick the stuff up and what to do next, we sent our little uh, ship over to uh, South Carolina to look for the second ship while that argument was going on, and that's when we found the Republic. So uh, uh, that kind of took the attention away from the one in, in uh, Gibraltar real quick. Well, what did, did, do you remember what the value of all that recovered treasure was? 
No, that's one of the dangerous things uh, about it is everybody wants you to guess at a value. Um, uh, if you just use the bullion value, that's really understating it, you oh, know, yeah. just the weight of silver or gold. But if you use a numismatic value, you have to, in effect, see each coin, uh, have it assayed, assayed for, for what, what is it? Is it an MS-60 or MS-65 or an MS-70? How rare is it? And there's thousands of them. That takes a long time to do. So everybody wants you to come up with a number. And uh, uh, I never did. Uh, I just said, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a good number, but we don't know. Uh, the, uh, uh, you could find... 10 of the let's say there's one coin that there's only one of in the world and you find 10 of them well if that one coin was worth ten thousand dollars what's it worth now that there's 10 more so the very fact that you find a whole bunch of things depreciates the value of everything that was there before right. uh, so you can't really you can't really you can just bet that if i find 40 or fifty thousand coins from the 1800s, it's going to be worth more than it cost me to go get them. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a heck of a story, definitely. I want to circle back to the Ponce de Leon work you did. There's a one thing I read that you, did, is, is this true that you theorized that it couldn't have been in Charlotte Harbor because they didn't have proper fresh water and that uh, Safety Harbor does? No, that was actually a very pleasant surprise. The, re the reporter who came out to interview me uh, uh, did some of his own homework before he wrote the story. And the reporter called the president of the Charlotte Harbor Historical Society. And down there, they have a park called the Ponce de Leon Park. And they have a sign that says, this is where the first colony was. So this reporter called him up and said, what do you think about this guy up in Tampa Bay? That says it happened in Safety Harbor. Rabble <laughs> uh, and, and and the guy in Charlotte Harbor said, "Well, I certainly believe him because I sure don't think it was here." Really? <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> and he said, "There's no water here. How are you going to have a settlement when you don't have any water?" Okay. So, uh, uh, I'm sure he got. Point. And they and they quoted him. And of course, he's been quoted now on Associated Press. So he's hated by everyone in Charlotte Harbor. I sent him an email and said, hey, that was an interesting quote. I'd love to talk to you about this. And he didn't answer me. But uh, so he's regretting uh, the words, uh, I think, that he said, because uh, it's a very nice park, Ponce de Leon Park down there. And uh uh, and, and and by the way, Ponce de Leon did land near there in his 1513 uh, expedition. So uh, they just need to change a few words, you know, that it was the first, you know, his first encounter with the natives and, you know, they can still have their park. You don't believe that he attempted to, to, to make the colony there at all then? No, he would have been he would have been insane because when he came here and there in 1513, I mean the Indians were super hostile, you know. Attack said they were going to meet to have a peace treaty, and then they attacked and killed a bunch of his men. They were very very hostile. Uh, a, f a few years later, another Spanish ship ended up there by accident, uh, and the Calusa, that was a tribe down there, they killed a bunch of them and drove them off. So, I mean, you'd have to be insane to say, I think I'm going to get a bunch of chickens and goats and pigs <laughs> and unload them off a boat and not expect I'm going to have a handful of trouble. So uh, 
that's another reason that I believe that they came up here because there were a different tribe up here was called the Tokobaga, and they were probably less hostile. The reason the ones down in the South Florida were so hostile is slavers. The Spanish slaving ships uh, from, the, from the islands would go to the coastal areas and capture Indians to make them as slaves. Well, if you were in the Tokobaga in Safety Harbor in, in, in what's called Old Tampa Bay, you probably didn't encounter any slavers. You, you, didn't, you, you probably weren't you know, ready to fight off any European you saw. Uh, but the ones living right on the coast would have definitely have had encounters with slavers and they'd be immediately hostile. So no, Ponce de Leon wouldn't go to a place where to try to set up a, a permanent settlement. Uh, with men and women and chickens and pigs and goats and all that stuff, uh, and 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 go to a place that he knew was, you know, super aggressive and wanted to kill him. I want I want to take a magnifying glass of Safety Harbor, though. I'm sure most people listening to this don't have a picture of it in our in their minds, but I've spent a lot of time there. And those is it Philippi Park? Is that what we're talking yes, about? Yes, it's called Felipe Park. Yes. Yeah. It is now. The, 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 that got its name because the first settler uh, in, in Pinellas County was a guy that was, uh, uh, he wasn't African-American or black, but he was half and half. I can't remember what they called him, but there was, that's what his, his son tells his story. Uh, so he says it was actually a black man that, 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 that was the first settler in Pinellas County. Um, and his name was Felipe, and they named the park after him. Um, there's a, uh, some people up there now that want to rename it because he himself owned slaves. And, you know, the big thing about renaming everything now. But uh, uh, that happens to be Felipe Park happens to be a place where the where the mounds are that where the for, for the main city of the Tokobaga tribe. And those um, mounds are quite large. They're huge. Uh, mm. And there's a book that I read when I was doing this latest book. It's called Indian Mounds You Can Visit. It was published about 25 years ago. Uh, this guy listed, uh, his name is I. Mac Perry. Um, he listed 165 of them along the, this coastal area that were still there. Uh, but in the late 1800s and early 1900s, uh, we bulldoze them. We used to, we used to, <sighs> they're all, they're all ground up shells. So they used them to pave roads. Okay. And uh, so. Well, why would, why would they make mounds out of ground up shells? Well, they ate this. I, I don't know They well, some of the mounds they made middens were a layer of shells and then a layer of dirt and a layer of shells and then a layer of dirt. And they would build the chief's house on top of it. Oh, that's right. You did say that. Uh, and, uh, uh, they call those middens. Now the burial mounds are, you know, they, what they used to do is they used to uh, uh, take the corpses and put them in a, and what they what we call a charnel house, until the uh, they were defleshed, and then they would deflesh them and take the bones and bury the bones in a burial mound, um, and uh, that was the tradition here for I guess a thousand years or so uh, before the Spanish got here. Um, that's why uh, when uh, when Narvaez went and found all those boxes from Castile uh, in Safety Harbor, all these cargo boxes, they all had bodies in them, uh, and they were undoubtedly they were the Indian bodies that they put in, used them as coffins because they used to have to have guards there to keep the wolves away from their 
bodies that were in the charnel house. Um, so uh, what Narvaez did, by the way, with all those cargo boxes with the bodies in them is he burned them all. There goes so, our uh, evidence. So that's, yes, there is no, no evidence. It might be, and, and, and archaeologists tend to uh, excavate burial mounds and middens. Uh, they don't tend to excavate flat land. If they're, and, and this charnel house wouldn't have been in a midden or on a, on a burial mound. It would be on a piece of flat land. It would be a hut on a piece of flat land. So if you did want to go do some archaeological work looking for embers, charred re human remains, and so forth, they wouldn't be in a burial mound, in, in a midden or a burial mound. They would be someplace else. Uh, so I don't think they'll ever find them. Well, uh, let me ask you a couple of questions about that because. I had it here written down, but there were 200 men and 50 horses and domestic animals. Do you, do you agree with that? Does that sound right? It depends. There's, there are different, different historians have different uh, perspective on it. The, the, the actual history uh, that people rely on is written by a guy named Herrera, and it was published in 1601. And that says he had 200 men and 50 horses. It also says he had two ships. Um, and one of the famous historians of the west coast of Florida, a guy named Fusan, last name is Fusan, Robert Fusan, uh, he said, I don't believe that they could have had 50 horses and 200 people and a crew on two ships. They'd have had to be really, really large ships to do that. So I don't believe it. I think there's only 100 people and 10 horses. That was his theory. The fact is, we don't know what size ship that 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 Ponce de Leon came on. We just know he, came, he had two ships. Um, we do know that for sure. You know, from from a letter he wrote to the king uh, that they have. The king, he said, "I'm leaving in five days with two ships and all the people I can carry." That's the only thing we're certain of. He had two ships and all the people he could carry, but they could have been huge ships. that could be small. Uh, it was the other historians that said he had X amount of horses and X amount of this and X amount of that. So it's all a heavy amount of guesswork there. But you, they, you go back to just thinking logically. If you're going to set up a settlement, what are you going to have? Where are you going to have chickens and pigs and horses? And, you know, you, you got to live. So uh, uh, I think that it's likely that it would have been a normal-sized settlement ship, what they called the 100-ton ship. Uh, that would have been about as small as they got, 100 tons. That would, that would carry 160,000 pounds uh, of cargo. Uh, and, uh, and then the ship itself. And th that ship would draw 10, 10 or 12 feet. Uh, so that ship would have to be, if it were in the Charlotte Harbor area, it'd have to be a couple of miles offshore for, in order to get the, all the things ashore. It, it just wouldn't work. Um, the um, Tampa Bay is difficult to find your way in past Egmont Key at the beginning, but it's a deep channel. And then once you get past Egmont Key, it's a deep bay and it goes back for 30 miles. And uh, the marine scientists that studied it said it was easily navigable by large ships in the early 1500s, including getting into old Tampa Bay and several deep anchorage places within old Tampa Bay. So they could have gone there. They really couldn't have sailed in Charlotte Harbor. You just can't sail a 12, 
a ship that draws 12 feet in 13 feet of water. Uh, you can try, but it's not going to work out very well. I know as a sailor, uh, you want to have more than a foot under the keel when you go sailing around here. That's for sure. Uh, well, okay, where I'm trying to go with that is that there's that, there's that much equipment, that many men. How long were they there? Do we know how long they were there before they had to hightail it out of there? That's, uh, that's conjecture based on we know when he left Puerto Rico. We left on February, approximately February 20th with two ships and all the people he could carry. One ship ends up in Cuba with him with, with a wound in the first week in July. And another ship ends up in Veracruz after the middle of July. And we know that because Cortez wrote a letter to the king. He used to write letters to the king all the time. I think there are four long, long letters he wrote to the king. In his third letter to the king, he gave a description almost day to day of his siege of Tenochtitlan, where he was going to take over. And uh, he talks about this guy did this on this date, this guy did this on that date. And he says, and a report came in uh, yesterday that one of Ponce de Leon's ships got to uh, uh, Veracruz and he had been killed uh, in, in a landing in Florida. So, we know that they one ship is is in Mexico in the middle of July, one's in Cuba in early July. We know they, they left Puerto Rico in fe, mid February. Uh, so what did he do for five and a half months? Uh, um, did he sail around in circles? Uh, so his intent was to uh, set up a settlement on the west coast of Florida. He had lived in the West Indies for twenty eight years, so it wasn't like. It wasn't like he didn't know the turf or his pilots of his ships and the sailors didn't know the turf. They'd been here for a long time. So uh, uh, most historians believe he came somewhere on the west coast of Florida. It probably took him two weeks to get here. Could have taken as little as 12 days, maybe 20, 25 days. He set up a settlement. The two reports we have from the chroniclers of the time say that that although his priest could could preach as much as they liked to the Indians, the Indians wouldn't listen to him. Now, that's another fact we know. Well, you had to have landed somewhere if you're going to preach to the Indians. Um, uh, so, And there's two different chroniclers that said that. So we know we landed somewhere. They preached to the Indians, and he enters up in the first week in July in Cuba with an arrow in him. So how long does it take to get sail from the west coast of Florida to Cuba? It's 300 miles. Not long. I mean, it can't, it's not going to take months. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so the conjecture of most historians is there was a settlement on the west coast of Florida. It lasted for about three months. Okay. Now, the really interesting thing is that the maps that I got that nobody has referred to, nobody, no historian has referred to them ever. Um, the map says the Bay of Juan Ponce, and they were drawn five, six years after he died. Um, and uh, would you name a Bay of Juan Ponce a place on a map for a guy that you don't know where he went and, and, and he never landed? It just doesn't make sense. So uh, uh, the, 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 the circumstantial, it's all a, a, a circumstantial evidence. Uh, my dad was a detective, and that's one of the reasons I like research so much. 
And my dad told me that the best evidence is circumstantial evidence. You want to have a, a, a large amount of circumstances that make you the guy that did it and a whole lot of other evidence that nobody else could have done it. Um, and with the Ponce de Leon thing, I'm doing the same thing. I'm saying all the evidence points to the fact that he landed and he was here for three and a half months and it was in, 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 in old Tampa Bay. Uh, and there's a whole lot of evidence that it couldn't have been someplace else. Um, the, uh, uh, you couldn't sail a deep ship into Charlotte Harbor. The Indians were, were, were warlike and ferocious, and he would have been an idiot to go there. Uh, so you start using a, you know, a combination of all of those pieces of evidence to say, that's yeah, a pretty, pretty strong evidence that he came here. You'll never prove it, uh, but it would be awfully hard on the basis of research that I've done to conclude that it could have been any place else. When you put together the maps, uh, when DeSoto came here, when the Soto expedition came here, they came to Tampa Bay in 1539 and they anchored just inside Tampa Bay. Uh, there's a, there's a DeSoto national park there Beautiful where they do too. reenactments and so forth. And I'm not talking about the Fort DeSoto. I'm talking about the one over in Brandon area oh, okay. that has got an Indian village and all that stuff. Nobody knows about it because it's out of the way. But he landed near there. His chronicler, his private secretary, said that when we landed there, we were 30 miles west of the Bay of Juan Ponce. Oh, that, well, that's a slam dunk. Then. Where can you be on the west coast of Florida where you're 30 miles west of another bay? I mean, at most bay, if you go 30 miles west, you're out in the middle of the Gulf. So when you add all of this stuff up, it just is, you know, and in my book, I do that. I add a piece of evidence and then another, then another, then another, then another. And so, you know, you can't prove it. You can't prove it. But it's very difficult to come up with an alternative explanation. It's like, you know, you were there. The guy's dead. You've got a gun. He's got a bullet in him. Your gun is a bullet missing. You know, you start adding that stuff up and you say, well, it's pretty hard to come up with an with a plausible alternative explanation. And I did. I tried very hard to to counter my 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 own story. So let me prove me wrong here. Right. And uh, I can't find a plausible. It took a year um, uh, of, of research, but I don't think I missed a book on, on cartography or a book on the uh, Spanish uh, exploration of the Americas uh, that I don't have, that I don't actually own. Uh, some of them are hundreds of years old. I've had them translated from the original Spanish by people that know how to do that. Uh, I, I don't think there's a plausible alternative explanation for my conclusion uh, that he came here, he was here for three months, he was in Tampa Bay, most likely old Tampa Bay. That's you know the bottom line. Well, if he was there for three months with all that equipment and men, there's got to be something left over. They is anyone tried to, to to metal detect or to dig it all? Is it because it's burial ground and we can't do that? Well, no, there are archaeologists actually doing doing archaeological digging there now. Uh, not maybe not today, but I mean it, it's time period. But okay. they're digging in a in a midden. Uh, well, you wouldn't find stuff in a midden 
that we're looking for. Because what we know we're looking for is the stuff that we know Narvaez has burned, right? He burned all the crates and in the, in the artifacts that he found. So they would be in the ground somewhere. You'd have or at least some coins or a belt buckle or a button or something. I mean, it's the needle in a haystack. Yeah, the only, the only thing that I found that, that might be some evidence is that when Narvaez came here, the first day he sent a guy in a rowboat to a little island to talk to a local Indian. And they bartered. And Cabeza de Bach wrote the book. He said they bartered for some some trinkets for some venison and some fish. Um, and uh, I found that a that a archaeologist came in 1879 to John's Pass, which is that area, Bocasega Bay, and he went to an island there and he dug up uh, a bunch of human skulls, and they used to collect them and send them back to the Smithsonian. And he found one glass bead and one tube of silver rolled up into a cylinder. And that's what he wrote in 1879 that he had found. And that might be somewhere in the Smithsonian. Um, and I'm told that archaeologists can date those glass beads within 20 years. I, okay. I, I, yeah, they can say if it was, it was 1540 or 1560. I don't know how they do it. Um, but uh, that's the only shred that I found that might be a piece of archaeological evidence. I don't think we'll ever find any in Safety Harbor uh, unless we start digging up other than middens because the, the, the house that the, the charnel house that Narvaez burned down that had all the bodies in it would have been away from the village, right? Because these decomposing corpses are not pleasant to have around. Yeah. They used to put a they used to put a guard out there at night to keep the animals away, but that would have been the place that got burned down, and that would not have been in a midden. It would not have been in a, you know, it would be just on the ground somewhere wherever you build a hut. So you'd have to start digging up just digging up ground. Well, know? now you probably got a house on top of it anyway. Now you've probably got a house yeah, or a road. Yeah. yeah. I think that I think the chances are pretty slim. And back in the early 1800s, uh, it was kind of a hobby uh, for the, the people here to dig up burial mounds and see what they could find. And there's all kinds of legends about people finding stuff, but it's of course gone. Uh, and uh, but there's history books about I found a you know I found a sword or I found a coin or I found this and this but it's useless because even if you still had it, you wouldn't know precisely the circumstances of where it was found, how deep was it? You know, an Indian could take a trinket from a dead Spaniard 300 miles That's away. That's a very good point. So it doesn't. doesn't That's a very good that. point. Yeah. What have they found in those burial mounds, though, in, in uh, Felipe Park? I think they found, well, they have found Spanish, they have found Spanish stuff, but the Spanish stuff that they found uh, was from about, and again, they're, they're dating the glass beads, was from about 1568. Uh, the guy that found is St. Augustine uh, Menendez, he wanted to catch something going on this coast of Florida. And he knew that there were two tribes that were fighting each other, the Calusa down South and the Tocobaga up here. So he wanted to arrange a peace treaty so they would, wouldn't be fighting everybody and they'd get along with the Spanish if they decided to settle here. So he came over here 
and met with the chief of the Calusa, then came up here to Old Tampa Bay to Safety Harbor, and he met with the chief of the Tokabaga. This is about 1568. And uh, uh, they seemed to hit it off. He left a garrison of 30 men behind, and they went back to St. Augustine. About 10 months later, a resupply ship came to this place, to Old Safety, to Old Tampa Bay, to Safety Harbor. And uh, the Tokabai had, had killed all but three of the Spaniards. And when they saw the Spanish ships sail into the bay, they killed the other three. And the Spaniards burned their village to the ground, burned Tokabaga to the ground. Uh, archaeologists have found evidence, uh, probably from the 30 or so Spaniards that were killed by the Tokabaga during that year that they were left as a, as, as a garrison. But they have found uh, Spanish artifacts dating from the 1550s and 1560s up there. They just haven't found any dating from the 1520s, which is what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, other thing is, you, you know, think of you're, you're a soldier uh, and you're going to walk when they when they landed, they decided they were going to walk north along the coast. Uh, you're a soldier. What are you going to throw away if you're if you're you going to throw anything away? Are you going to discard a sword or a hat or a helmet or a coin? You're not going to leave anything behind. Uh, so uh, they uh, I think that the the, the thought that 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 guys traveling inland uh, that, are, that are carrying what they need are going to start throwing stuff away is, is kind of silly. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and again, when you find something, it doesn't mean that it wasn't brought there by somebody at another time. You know, it, it wouldn't, even if you did, it wouldn't prove it. It's better, I think, to have circumstantial evidence of overwhelming like 30 different things that point to a place than it is to say i found a sword with the guy's name on it that's a very good point yeah the uh it's it's my dad taught me that my dad said you'd think an eyewitness is the best surest way to put someone in jail but it's the worst the best way to do it is a bunch of circumstantial evidence that rules out every other possibility um and uh so that's that's what I think. And historians won't do that, by the way. Historians will not do that. They're, historians will never say, Jim McDougall has proven that, 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 that Ponce de Leon landed, in, or, or even that the Bay of Juan Ponce was Tampa Bay. They won't say it, because unless you can show them a video of the guy stepping ashore, <laughs> they won't say that. Um, they, it's, it's something that their standard of proof if we use that in the legal system, no one would ever go to jail. No one. Um, the, they'd say, we've got to find artifacts almost with the guys, you know, Ponce de Leon landed here and, 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 and three eyewitnesses. So uh, uh, you won't get that. But I think, I think there's validity there. Uh, they don't like the idea that the Plymouth Rock wasn't really seen by the Pogans when they landed. It's really just a rock. And it isn't even where they landed. They landed 15 miles from there. Um, historians don't like that. Um, I like it. I like it because I don't care where the Plymouth Rock was, you know, whether it was a mile to the east or three miles to the south. The thing is, you need a sense of place in order to be able to 
talk about something in order to be able to recognize it and honor it. You, and if you don't have a sense of place, it didn't happen. And that's my problem here. We have no sense of place here that Narvaez landed here, that Estevanico landed here, that Ponce de Leon landed here. We don't talk about it. We don't, uh, we don't honor it. Uh, and and uh, so I think even if you put a monument up that's a mile off, who cares if it's worth remembering? And I think when I tried to get the city to make a monument to Estevanico and an Indian, Tocobog, and I said, they don't have anybody who can talk for them. You know, so why don't we tell their story? They're, they're, they're amazing, great stories. And if you have a sense of place, you do. And if you don't have a sense of place, you don't. You got to have a, a you got to have a something. It's like, and if you ever go to Key West, everybody that goes there gets their picture taken next to this little thing that says furthest point south in the U.S. I've got one. <laughs> it's, it's a sense of place. I mean, it's like, you know, it's if, if that weren't there, you, you weren't there. It wasn't there. So uh, that's my, my, my mission is to get uh, both with Narvaez and with Ponce de Leon is to recognize people on both sides of the equation, the natives who were here and the people who landed as real people. You know, human beings. Um, imagine what it was like in the early 1500s to get on a ship and sail 4,000 miles across an ocean if you were a woman. When Norvias landed here, he had 10 women with him. Uh, imagine how brave you had to be. Uh, and when you went walking inland with no map, no idea what was down the road, what kind of animals there were. It's, it's, uh, these were brave people. And, uh, uh, and what if you weren't Indian? You know, I've been here for thousands of years, and suddenly guys come with cannons and guns. Uh, those are stories worth remembering and worth telling. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and so uh, I'm getting to the end of the road in terms of my ability to do it. I'm getting old. Uh, but uh, I always thought if you wrote a book and wrote what you knew and put it there, somebody else that looks into this one day, will find my book. They'll have a starting point. Um, and uh, uh, so that's really all I'm trying. I'm not trying to sell books. I don't, as a matter of fact, most people, when they say they're going to buy my book about Narvaez, I tell them, don't bother. Uh, buy the Relacion, buy Cabeza de Vaca, and read the story. Don't read about me figuring out where he landed. That's pretty boring. Uh, I did that just to get local state people to, to recognize this is where he landed do something about it recognize it but that's not a fun book to read um so uh, uh i'm certainly not trying trying to make a living selling books i don't think any i don't think that book's going to be i wouldn't i wouldn't recommend it unless you're a historian and you wonder i wonder if he really landed there i wonder where the proof is then i'd say read it um with this book on ponce de leon it's similar um it's awfully academic. It's, I've had three professors helping me write it. They made me write it like a PhD thesis. It has a lot of footnotes. Uh, and uh, it's very careful, you know, and edited and re-edited. It's really, uh, it's really not, it wouldn't be a fun read unless you're really, really interested in the subject. Uh, uh, it's, there's not a good book yet. Uh, I think if maybe somebody will take what I've written and write a good book <laughs> that, that that isn't you know full of footnotes and Joe Blow said this and 
you know, Connie Smith said that um, and just tells a story. Uh, the story should get told. And I'm not I'm not the guy for that. I'm a researcher. I'm not really that great of a writer. Can, can we see the map? Can you see it? Yeah, yeah. Can you put it on the screen? We actually hadn't gone through it yet. Yeah, I, I will be delighted to. Uh, I'll give you the I'll give you the map that is. Uh, this is the one that cost you the three grand, right? To dig up. Yeah, this is a. Can you see that? No. Okay, I have to hit share. Yeah, there you go. There it is. Okay, so that's actually a scan of uh -huh. the map. And uh, I don't know if you can see my pointer. Yes. Okay, but that area, you can see all the little black things. Those are all names of places. Yes. Let me get rid of this and see if I can get the map itself. Have you got this? Yes. Can you see this? Yes. Okay, the, uh, uh, this map is three feet by two feet. Uh, and the beauty, once I had it scanned, is you can enlarge it. Uh, isn't it beautiful? It's a beautiful piece of work. Wow. It really is. It is. Wow. Uh, but you oh, can, you can, you can keep enlarging it because of today's technology. Look at, uh, look at the clarity. So you can look at the coast of Florida and you can see at the southern tip, there's the marchers, which is what we call the keys. Uh, there's the tortugas. Uh, there's uh it says la f and then up here Florida, la florida mm -hmm. and it has a rio scapana it has rio de la paz mm -hmm. river of peace right. rio de canoas river of canoes bay de juan ponce right right mm -hmm. there and uh if you uh and nobody has written about this, but but that's a latitude scale. There's a latitude scale on the map. And the numbers are written upside down. Mm -hmm. So at first, you don't really notice what they are. But then you realize that that's a 20. It's 20 degrees of latitude. Okay. It's 25. And that's 30. The red line is Tropic of Cancer, which is always put on maps at 23 and a half degrees. That's what they do today. And that's what they did in 1527. Uh, 20, 21, 22, 23 and a half, right? Right. That's, imagine, 1527. If you did a map today, that is where you would draw it. If you use GPS, I think it's staggering. It is. Uh, but uh, so when you get a map like this, you can learn stuff about it because I was studying Narvaez, and this map says land that Narvaez is going to populate. Tierra que ahora va a poblar. Panfilo de Narvaez. Yeah, this was that. his turf. Okay. Yeah. Um, everything. Everything from here, which is about Corpus Christi, Texas, to the Cape of Florida was his land. Can you refresh me? When was this map made again? 1527. And it was this made? copy was made in 1860, but it's a, it's a duplicate of the 1527 okay. map. Which was drawn by who in 1527? They think, they don't know, it doesn't signed by the maker. They think it was uh, Christopher Columbus's son, Hernan Colon. Oh, wow. Columbus's name in Spanish, Columbus, you know, is Italian. So mm -hmm. Colon in Spanish is the same as Columbus. Right. So his, his, uh, uh, his son became the chief cartographer mm -hmm. for, the, for, for the king. And we believe he drew this map. Wow. There, there was another map drawn at the same time. 
uh, actually dated. Uh, are you seeing this one okay? Yeah. Mm -hmm. This map is dated 1529. Wow. It's one of the most famous maps uh, that, that exist because there's a copy of it in the in the Vatican. Wow. When I saw this map, uh, I, that's what caused, caused me to start studying maps. When I saw this map dated 1529, I realized that it's wrong. It isn't a 1529 map. It's a 1526 map, although it's dated 1529. Uh, because it says here, Tierra de Garay, mm -hmm. where the other map said the land of Narvaez. Mm -hmm. This one says land of Garay. Well, Garay died in 1523. And in yeah. 1526, they gave his land to Narvaez in 1526. So you wouldn't make a map in 1529 naming territory after a dead man three years after it had been given to someone else. All so. Right. So, so this map is really a 1526 map, and if but if you look at it, it also has uh, Bay de Juan Ponce on it. Mm -hmm. I see it. Yeah, there. I see, and that's and definitely it has, Tampa. And it has Rio de Canoas, River mm -hmm. of Canoes. It has a thing Aguada, uh, and that means that means watery, literally. But in those days, it meant mm -hmm. this is where you can get fresh water. Yeah. Uh, but look at the, I mean, the, the map is staggering when you consider that this is, this map, and the people on the sound only can't see it, but this map is two feet by three feet, but it's only one-fourth of the world map. See, this guy only copied the America's portion of the map. So if you wanted to see the whole map, it would be four times bigger than this. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, it's it's fascinating and it, I don't believe it's seen by a Florida historian. This map has pictures of ships on it. Right. But actually, when you look at it carefully, it says to the Indies underneath it. And the ship is heading towards the Indies. And this one says from the Indies. And it's heading up the, the, uh, uh, up the East Coast. And then this one says from the Indies. And it's going back to Spain. So the pictures on the map were really designed to tell you which direction to travel and where. You come this way to go to the Indies, then to leave it, you go that way, which we now uh, know is a great circular route, but they knew that in 1527. What are all those little lines? Are those guides of They're called Portolan. They're called Portolan lines, uh, P-O-R-T-O-L-A-N. The charts of the time had... Uh, were based on compass headings from one place to another. So once you got to one place, if you wanted to find another place, you would get your compass out and find out what the heading of the compass was to get to there, and then you would sail that direction. Oh. So they were guides for sailors. Very but nice. the big, the main guide that they used was 23 and a half degrees because that was the Tropic of Cancer. Uh, and uh, these guys were good. As I, as I told you, this chart also has a, the latitude, longitude. When I blew this up to a, this map up to a very large size black and white that I could draw on, and I just cropped it just to leave enough of the latitude line on it so that it would be there. Mm -hmm. and, then, and I just took that, that much of it and drew lines across the map. I measured about eight or ten different places, and I compared the, the, the places with two sources. One of them was a book called the Espejo, which was a guide for sailors. 
that told sailors what the latitude and longitude of certain places were. And so I made a chart of here's what the, the guide for sailors said the latitude was. Here's what the latitude is when it's drawn on the map. And then here's what GPS says the latitude of San Juan, Puerto Rico is. And I found that they were within two or three tenths of a degree every time. It was amazing. These guys were really good. And nobody knew how good they were because nobody has ever measured the latitudes on these that I know of has ever actually measured the latitudes on these charts. Uh, and uh, can uh, you can you load back up the one that was your eureka moment exactly where you were looking when you when you figured it all out? The, the one that was dated the wrong year? Yeah, the one that you paid the three grand for and then oh, figured these out. two. These were the two. It was both of those. The, yeah, this is one of the two. But what, this what, is, go ahead. This one stated 1529. I can't and, see the maps. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. I hit the wrong button again. I it's apologize right. for that. No problem. Uh, the... Uh, Can you see that one? No. No. What am I doing wrong? Uh, hit that screen share button again. You went off a of screen share. That's the problem. So just hit screen share. It should show back up again. There. Okay. So the first map um, that I opened up was one that stated 1529 because it's dated in, in, in history books, I'll talk about this map. They say it's okay. a 1529 map uh, by Ribeiro, uh, and uh, it's very famous because it's got a lot of land, you know, a lot of language on it. You know, it says there's head, mm -hmm. there, there, there's uh, uh, cannibals here, uh, and there's gold here, and look at that. I mean, there's Whoa. hundreds of names of places. Um, it's a very famous map because two versions of the same map exist: one at the Vatican. Um, and and one uh, that was in Weimar, which is where the, both of these maps were in the in the Grand Ducal Library, um, and they're very famous maps, and they're very they're known as a 1529 Ribeiro map. And uh, when I looked at them, I said they can't be 1529 because it tells you who's who owns this territory, mm -hmm. and this who owns this territory, Tierra de Aion. They were both long dead in 1529. They wouldn't make a map in 1529 of guys that, who had died and been replaced with somebody else. Uh, so uh, uh, that was one eureka moment. The other eureka moment was, uh, am I, am I, is this map coming up? Yes. Uh, the other eureka moment was really, and this sounds really far-fetched, but imagine if you were in Connecticut or Texas, and you were doing this study, as, as I am, uh, would you know when you looked at this map and it said on it, Rio de la Paz, would it connect in your mind, oh, there's a river down there named the Peace River, and I wonder if that's it? Right. Yeah, likely. Right. So I think it's very serendipitous mm -hmm. that as a sailor who sailed up and down the coast for 12 years and was very familiar with Charlotte Harbor and the maps and charts there, Right. And I knew there was a Peace River there, and I spoke enough Spanish to know that Paz meant peace. Right. And I made that connection. I think that I'm probably the first one to make that connection. Uh, that 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 Charlotte Harbor was known as 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 the Rio de la Paz. Can you zoom in? Zoom in for the for those of us that can see it and show us show them exactly where Tampa Bay is. Here's 
it's in red. Important yeah. places were in red. Mm-hmm. It says okay. Bay de Juan Ponce, and it's right there. And, and, and show them where Safety Harbor is. It would be in this corner right up here. And, and It's not drawn. And, you know. But you figured out that it's Safety Harbor and not somewhere else in Tampa Bay based on drawing the line on the draft it, it, board? It could, it could be. No, I only figured out that it was Tampa Bay. Oh. That, that 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 it was uh um so you're not absolute that it's safety harbor per se no no you were no. absolute it, that it's it was- it's, it, it's the only reason that i'm concluding it was safety harbor is that narvaez went there and found a whole lot of cargo boxes there oh that's right and artifacts you know clothes shoes pieces of iron seems pretty darn uh, convincing to me and and you know the indians could have brought them from someplace else to their village in, in safety harbor certainly yeah. um but it's it, it's a good harbor as a sailor i know that because when you when you when you anchor a ship uh, or sailboat you want to be protected you don't want your anchor to drag and you get run aground you don't want your anchor to drag and your ship goes out to sea you want to be in a cove you want to be in a protected place and 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 Old Tampa Bay is a beautifully protected bay within a bay. It's like an appendage of this huge bay that is almost like a clock, you know, and there's a, at about 4.30 or so, there's an entrance and everything else is sealed off. And it's the waters are pretty calm in there too. Yes, it's shallow, but mm-hmm. I had the depths of that studied and uh, it runs at at low tide, at average low tide, about 12 to 14 feet of depth uh, today. Uh, there hasn't been much sedimentation there, so it wouldn't have been much deeper 500 years ago, been a little deeper, six inches, maybe a foot deeper uh, 500 years ago. Um, the channel would have been 25 feet deep. So you could sail into it and anchor, but how far in or where you would anchor in there, uh, you can't really determine. But it just seems logical that as a sailor, you'd want to be in a safe place that's a safe place. There aren't many others uh, that that you could get a ship into, uh, you know, unless you want to be in Tampa Bay. I live right on the edge of Tampa Bay. It's eight miles across mm-hmm. uh, you, you, where I am. Uh, the uh, I wouldn't want to anchor right here. You know, you're really not that protected here. So you'd want a cove within a cove. So as a sailor, I would want old Tampa Bay. And then Narvaez found all the artifacts there. It just made sense. But no, I definitely can't prove that it was there. Did, just did, logical. did De Leon make any detailed description of what it looked like exactly where he was setting it up that could help us draw some clues? No, he just said he was going to Florida. Oh. Um, the He did say uh, the there was a Rumor there was a map drawn in 1519 uh, that showed that Florida was connected to Mexico. See, they used to think Florida was an island, and a ship went around uh, and 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 sailed the whole coast of the Gulf and drew a map. It's called the Pineda map. It's in my book in 1519, saying, "Hey, Florida is connected to New Spain, Mexico, where where Cortez is." Um, and 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 about six months after that, Ponce de Leon decides he's going to go s- set up a settlement in Florida. Um, he was living in Puerto Rico at the time. So I believe that he found out that 
this land that Cortez was conquering, getting all the gold from, was connected to this island he'd claimed, and he'd better go establish a settlement there. It's just, it may be just a coincidence that he happened to decide to establish a settlement there right about the time they found out it was connected to Mexico. Uh, but he, when he wrote his letter to the king, he said, I intend to go to Florida with, with two ships and all I can carry. And I intend to find out if that land is connected to the land that Cortez is. Okay. So why would he say that unless somebody told him, you know, hey, it's connected. Well, if you wanted to find out if Florida was connected to Mexico, you wouldn't go to the tip of Florida. <laughs> That's a long way that you've got to go exploring to find out. So you'd, you'd, you'd go north, you know, you'd go up the state a few hundred miles at least. So uh, when you, it's just another piece of evidence that uh, – he wouldn't have wanted to be at the southern tip of Florida if he's trying to figure out if Florida is connected to Mexico. He'd want it. He'd be traveling. Once he made his, his settlement, he'd be sending his ships around the coast counterclockwise uh, to figure out how far it was. I, I hate to bring it to this. You probably get upset with me for bringing it up, but I guarantee there's several listeners going, when are they going to talk about the Fountain of Youth? Uh, that's a that's funny. There's a professor here, a professor of history, Michael Francis, who runs a Florida studies program, who gives lectures on that subject. Uh, that it is a complete myth that Ponce de Leon was looking for the Fountain of Youth. Frankly, I don't I don't know if I agree with that because there was a there was a, a belief that there were seven cities of gold in the New World, and there was a it was a myth, but people believed it was true. There were seven cities of gold. And people did believe there was a fountain of youth somewhere. Um, so, And people did go looking for it. Uh, Professor Francis says that, uh, that he definitely wasn't looking for the fountain of youth. Uh, that the guys that said he was want, just said it to make him look stupid. Um, that's, that's a theory. I mean, okay. but... But but back in those days, people did believe a fountain of youth existed. I don't think that's the reason that he came to Florida, you know, to find the fountain of youth. But to say that that wasn't something that he was asking about, I don't know that you can prove that. I, I think that generally most historians would say today that uh, it's greatly exaggerated, you know, that the, the, the purpose, certainly the purpose of his trip was not to find the fountain of youth. The purpose of his trip was to find an island known as Bimini and other islands nearby and claim them because he'd been kicked out as governor of Puerto Rico and he wanted some new land to, to run himself. Uh, that was his mission. Uh, and there's no question about that. Um, but to say, that's like me saying that when you were walking down the beach, last week, you weren't looking for shells. Well, how do I know if you were looking for shells or not? I mean, so I don't think it really matters. I think it's wrong to say that the reason he came here was to found the, find the fountain of youth. But it's equally wrong to start talking about what his notions were about whether it was or wasn't one. We don't know. A couple other interesting things about Ponce de Leon. He, he came from royalty, did he not, in Spain? This is kind of like a political connection thing. That he got came from a very, very highly placed family. He was very close to King Ferdinand. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
there were different cities, uh, Aragon and Castile, Ferdinand and, and Isabel. So she was queen of one and he was king of the other and they married each other. Spain was not united at the time and it really started to become united when they united. Uh, by the way, their daughter uh, uh, is better known as Catherine of Aragon, mm. uh, the wife of Henry VIII, mm. the first wife of Henry VIII. Uh, but uh, yeah, they were, they were very, very well, conne very connected. And Ponce de Leon uh, was really loved by King Ferdinand. That's why when uh, when uh, uh, Christopher Columbus' son got appointed viceroy and they kicked <laughs> uh, Ponce de Leon out of his job as governor of Puerto Rico, the king was willing to immediately give him new lands. Go, But what happened is he discovers... Back, he discovers Florida in 1513. He goes back to Spain in 1514. The king says, wonderful, you're a hero, gives him a bunch of medals, gives him a new contract to settle Florida. He gets back on a ship and goes back to Puerto Rico. When he gets back to Puerto Rico, a few months later, he learns King Ferdinand just died. Mm. So he goes, oh, my gosh. So he has to go back to Spain again because mm. the new king is a 16-year-old kid named Carlos who lives over in the Netherlands, who doesn't even speak Spanish. Was that Carlos the new King? Carlos the, the first of Spain, Carlos the fifth, who three years later at the age of 19 became the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so poor Ponce de Leon had to go back to Spain again to try to get Carlos to recognize his right to Florida. And he was there for three years, Ponce de Leon was. Uh, before he finally got reappointed, basically, as a governor of Florida. So uh, these guys went back across the ocean a lot more than we think we they did. I think Ponce de Leon went back and forth four or five times from Spain to the Indies. Another interesting thing I read about him, and maybe you know something about this, maybe you don't, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but uh, somebody named John J. Brown A's, Claim that thirty percent of Puerto Rico's descent, Puerto Ricans, descend from Ponce de Leon and his wife. Have you read anything about that? It's a bold statement. It's a bold statement, but I'll tell you that when the, the, there is a fact that the uh, the Spanish basically depopulated the islands um, in the early fifteen hundreds. You weren't allowed to bring slavery. wasn't liked by the Spanish king and queen of Spain. Slavery was not a good thing. Uh, the, uh, if you did own a slave and you wanted the slave to come to the new world, you had to get special permission to bring a, a slave with you to the new world. Um, and uh, Cabeza de Vaca did and a few other guys, I mean, uh, uh, Narvaez did with Estevanico and a couple of other people did. That were, there weren't many black African slaves coming to the new world. It was very, very difficult. They had to swear to be Christian. They had to have lived in Spain for several years, uh, and you had to pay a fee. So the, the, the notion of black slaves coming to the new world in the early 1500s is really very incorrect. What happened is the Spanish enslaved all of the natives of the islands. Um, and they, would, they took all the, all the Indians they could capture from the coasts, the continents from the from the Bahamas and brought them to the islands of Puerto Rico and Cuba uh, to use on their ranches and farms and mines until they ran out of people. Uh, and when they ran out of people, 
the crown started letting them buy slaves from the Portuguese because the Portuguese controlled Africa. Uh, everything, everything east of the papal line belonged to Portugal. So Portugal controlled Africa. So Portugal brought the slaves to the slave markets in Spain. The Spanish bought them uh, to bring to the islands in the Caribbean because they had killed all the Indians, basically. Um, so uh, it's probably very likely that there aren't many Puerto Ricans that are descendants of the Indian tribes of Puerto Rico. Uh, so it would be likely they would be very Spanish. You know, uh, the uh, uh, life expectancy was not long. They worked them very hard in the mines. And uh, uh, I don't know, don't know anything about how many children Ponce de Leon had, but uh, uh, certainly I do know that they depopulated a lot of the islands. And that's the reason that the African slave trade began was they just ran out of Indians uh, in the New World to enslave. Well, I mean, I hate to say it, but basically you're talking about genocide on all the islands. And... Yeah, and the f funny thing about it is, it's not funny, but the rule was, there was a rule, uh, they, that, that when the Spanish landed, they had this, they had a, this proclamation they had to read. Uh, it was called the requirement, uh, the requerimento, the requirement. You had to do that. So when you came ashore, you got out this parchment and you read it. You said, okay, everybody, even if there's nobody there, you had to say this. And if the Indians were there and they didn't speak Spanish, it didn't matter because you had to say it. And you said, okay, everybody, I'm going to teach you the Christian ways. And if you uh, obey me and do what I want and become a good Christian, then I'm going to leave you alone. You can do anything you want to do. You're totally free. But if you don't, I can kill you or enslave you. That's the rules. That was the requirement. So they did that everywhere. And uh, uh, of course, the Indians didn't speak Spanish, didn't know what they were saying, and weren't inclined to do it anyway. But, they're, but they're, those were the rules. So the king and queen thought that the Spaniards in the New World were converting the natives and turning them all into good Christians and all that stuff, when in fact what was happening is they were, they were either directly or indirectly killing them. They were bringing diseases because they had, that they had immunities to that the Indians didn't, and they'd wipe out whole populations. Uh, you know, so one guy would have smallpox and land. Well, in, on the siege of Tenochtitlan, um, when Cortez had, it was a city of 200,000 people. It was eight times as big as London then. Um, the uh, the people that came over from Cuba brought smallpox with them. So they infected the population of Tenochtitlan, and they were dying like flies. So uh, between the between the diseases they brought, diseases really is one that killed most of the Indians. I'd say the Indians probably killed as many Spaniards, if not a lot more, than vice versa, at least on the west coast of Florida. Um, if it were just a battle of who was the better fighter and tougher, the Indians would have won. And they did. You know, the Spanish never succeeded in landing here and settling here. But when you throw in that, uh, uh, the diseases, there's no, you know, there's no countering that. So uh, yeah, they, uh, yeah, I've read they, that too, and that's a story basically across the entire Americas. Yeah, it's uh, it, it was it was staggering. The loss of lives is staggering. Uh, a lot of people don't know that you know we talk about bringing diseases here, 
But a lot of people don't know there's this thing called the Columbian Exchange. That's a term given for it. Uh, that means what was what happened after Columbus discovered the New World? Um, there were no horses in the New World. There was no cattle in the New World. There were no pigs in the New World. Um, the Spanish brought them here. There were no potatoes in Europe. There were no tomatoes in Europe. Um, there were, it, it was a tremendous exchange. But uh, uh, because of the Spaniards coming here in the early 1500s with their cattle and their pigs and their horses, the whole American Indian, Plains Indian, was born of the horses that got freed and millions of them went around the West. The whole uh, cattle industry. The millions of heads of cattle were all cow, cattle that the Spanish brought here in the 1500s. 200 years later, there are millions of them. The Arkansas Razorback was brought here by DeSoto Elander with 300 pigs. Um, so uh, uh, there were a lot of, there was a huge impact of, of these uh, early people that came here that most people don't know about. Uh, but the other, the other impact was they unknowingly brought diseases with them. And I'm sure they didn't know. Uh, how would they know? Uh, but they did. And that was, a, and I think that's what wiped out most of the coastal Indians, because that's where the contact was. Um, the ones that were further inland weren't impacted by it. So uh, that's why the coasts were bare between the slavers and the contact of people who had diseases. They just kind of wiped out the the coastal, the coastals, coasts and the islands. So, so where's your future work going to be next? I think uh, I'm not going to do any big book, but I want to do a small book about Estevanico, about this African slave from Morocco. Um, the, uh, the, Moroccan, the Moroccans all know who he is. They teach their children in school about Estevanico. Um, and, and we don't know who he is, but they do. And uh, about 30 years ago, the Moroccan government hired a sculptor to make a sculpture of Estevanico, a bronze. And they flew him over to Morocco to find a model. And he found a model and he made this bust. He made four of them. And one of them he gave left there in Morocco and three he brought back here and put them in museums in Texas and New Mexico. I don't know where they are, but the, he made four. Well, when I was doing my research about Estevanico, I found him. Uh, it wasn't easy, but I found him. And I said, uh, tell me the story. So he told me, I said, well, you write it up. It's really a great story. So he wrote it up. And I said, I want to buy one of the bus. He said, there were only four. Uh, and I said, well, what would it cost to have another one made? And he said, well, a lot. And I said, well, you still got the cast yeah i said well i'll buy one so i did i bought one i had another bust mm. made had it shipped up here it's in my office mm. uh, and uh i had him write the story up and i had him arrange for him to come up here and for me to donate the bust to the museum of history here and uh while we were making the arrangements he died <sighs> so i have the story he wrote mm. uh, and i have the research about Estevanico, so I thought I'd make a small paperback and I would print the story that he wrote. It's only 12 or 14 pages, but it's a great story. His father was one of the sculptors of, uh, 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 with, uh, uh, in South Dakota of the uh, 
it's Borglum, I think is a sculptor's name, who did the president's. Oh, wow. His father was there. And so this guy, wow. uh, this guy was raised in the dust of his father building wow. those, you know, carving the mountain is what he called it. Um, the, uh, You're talking about really, Mount Rushmore, right? Mount Rushmore, yeah. The, uh, the, 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 the guy is, uh, he, he was a wonderful man. And, and it's a very moving story about his, about his interest in Estevanico, this African slave that, that, that came here. And, uh, discovered Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, and uh, so uh, he, he, it was a labor of love for him to go make this bust. And uh, they've got at the port there where in the town that he was from, uh, they have Estevanico, you know, like 40 feet long written on the, <laughs> on the landing where the ships come in. Um, he's a big deal there. And, uh, so I thought I'd do a book about him because, of, uh, uh, again, and I, I tried to get the city to memorialize it, and they didn't. There's been five books written about Estevanico, and, there, and he's been written about in chapters of other books. He's been called the first great black man in America. Um, yeah, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote a book about the ten about the greatest black men in history, and his first chapter of his book is about Estevanico. So it isn't like he's never been heard of, but it's that around here, which is where he landed, nobody's ever heard of him. Um, so I'd like to do a book about him that was that is a simple explanation of, of who he was and where he was from and what is known about him. And that'll be the last one. That'll, that'll be my last book. Uh, it's a lot of work to write a nonfiction book. I, I swore the last time that I would never do a nonfiction book again. If you write fiction, you can say anything you want to. Right. Uh, if you write nonfiction, almost every line you write, you have to say, do I need to footnote this? You know, it's a lot almost, like being you know, a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every sentence you 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 put down, yeah. you say, you know, King Ferdinand married Queen Isabella in fifteen whatever, and you start saying, "Geez, do I need a footnote? That mm. where did that fact come from?" And uh, so uh, it's a it's a, it's difficult. You can't footnote every sentence. Nobody would ever read a book. So you have to decide. And and you know, I end up with like a hundred and thirty or forty footnotes after paring it down. Um, but it's a lot of work to do that and uh, uh, to get them right and write them in the right format, the way the, the professionals want to see them. And uh, nonfiction, you can just tell a story. Uh, I mean, with fiction. Right. So, so if I ever write again, it'll be fiction. Except the book on Estevanico, I'm going to, since I have so much information, um, it would be a waste not to write it down. So, you know, because I, I really have a lot of information. So I'm just going to write it down. And again, my mission is write it, get it published, print it, and have it there. Uh, and then my job is done. Somebody else can, you know, take what they want from it. It's a, it at least it's a permanent thing. It's there. Right. If you ever want to read about Nar Narvaez, for example, and you go to Amazon, you're going to find my book. You may not buy it. But it's there. Um, so uh, uh, I think that Estevanico deserves that. Uh, and I think that uh, Ponce de Leon, the first governor of Florida who died in the attempt, I think he deserves that too. So uh, uh, 
if I get that pig in the ground, I think that that's a good thing. And we'll let the next guy, you know, take it from there. Well, on behalf of the human race, I want to thank you for <laughs> your work. I think it's super important that as an American, I can't believe you've blown the lid off of my understanding. And I'm sure most people, and I think what you're doing is super important work. So thank well, you. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. And thank you personally from one individual to the next. You've been working with me for hours and you didn't hesitate. And I'm very grateful for your time. And you've just, there's so many things we could keep talking about. You're a very it's, fascinating human being. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. We'll do this again sometime. Yes. And before I let you go, if you've got some sort of research or analysis that you could use some work on, send me something because I love to analyze things too. Okay, I've got a couple of things. I'll email you. All right. Okay. Well, yeah. Research is fun. The, but one thing I didn't mention that I should have that is probably the most important thing of all, that I should have started off by saying that I, as a layman, have more information at my fingertip than the best university professor had 10 years ago. Okay, so whatever they wrote 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, imagine what I could do. I've got a map from 1527. Mm -hmm. I could put it on my computer. I could show it to you. I could blow it up so you could read stuff that is written so tiny that even with a magnifying glass, you can't read it in real life. So we have the power with the Internet. When I wanted to buy this book, there's only one in the world. Think about that. In the whole world, there was one book for sale. And I found it, and I bought it. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the Internet gives us such enormous power to gather information that, that we can really, uh, we can do a better job. A layman can do a better job today than a professional could do 20 years ago. Um, and I don't think that makes me any different. It just makes me luckier. Uh, I could put, I could get every book ever written about Ponce de Leon tomorrow. Think about that. At 20 years ago, you wouldn't even know the books existed. There was, you wouldn't know, and you wouldn't even know they've been written. You'd go to your librarian and say, "Do you have a book about this?" So, uh, the enormous concentration of information that you can gather now—it's overwhelming. Uh, uh, that's why my my workspace is in a different building where, as I said, my wife wouldn't tolerate me look, having something like that here. I've got 20 or 30 books open and 15 maps lying around, but almost all of it came because I had the internet and I would find that person or find that bookseller or whatever and get it. And uh, uh, that doesn't make me smarter than the guy that wrote the book that's thought that Ponce de Leon landed in Charlotte Harbor. It makes me luckier because I have so much more information that he did that I know that he can't have landed in Charlotte Harbor. I have huge admiration for the people whose books I've used uh, that wrote them 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, 50 or 100 years ago. I can't even comprehend how difficult that was and how well they did it. So, uh, yeah, I think that that's the greatest, most important thing is that we have a tool, we have the internet, and we have the ability to communicate like this, that we can we can move at warp speed now compared to what they could do 20 years ago in research. I love it. You did bring up a point that was, I'm glad you brought that up, because I've been dying to ask you, but then I forgot. 
what kind of flack you get because you don't have a comma PhD after your name. Oh, well, I've got th- the, uh, the funny thing about it is if that's the most political, the most political thing in the world is college professors. Okay. Because they want to be known. Uh, I wrote the book on this, or I have the theory on that, or I discovered this. They want to be known. Um, uh, how do you get known by research, right? You, there's the old thing, publish or perish. You know, get known. Get our university known. Get yourself known. Be be a big gun. Um, the, uh, they won't like it at all that some amateur sitting in his house got picked up by the Associated Press and this newspapers all over the world talking about <laughs> me saying where Ponce de Leon landed Good and these you. guys, the guys are probably flipping. Uh, but the, uh, so, but I've had three professors advising me, three excellent professors who, by the way, are authorities on, on, on Narvaez and early Spanish exploration, not just professors. One's a Sterling professor at Yale University who wrote a three-volume, 1,259-page book about, about uh, Narvaez. Another is a professor from the University of Tampa who wrote a book about Cabeza de Vaca and the Relacion. Another is a professor who lives in New York now, a retired professor of history. has written 20 books about the history of Florida, the early history of Florida, the pre the pre uh, colonial and colonial times. Um, so I have I've had professors helping me do this in a way that will give me credibility in their world. I still am not a professor, and I've, and 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 I'll get undoubtedly dissed, but they help me do it in the right format and use the right references, and make sure I didn't overlook certain references in my in the course of my research so that it would stand up to scrutiny of a of a professional. That have was they, their goal. Have those three professors endorsed your theory? Well, they Milanich absolutely wrote, it's a fact that 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 the Tampa Bay was the Bay of Juan Ponce. Done. Whether Ponce de Leon landed in old Tampa Bay Great theory. Let's do more research. Okay, that's 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 what uh, Martin Favada, the the uh, uh, professor from the University of Tampa, really buys the whole thing. But he wouldn't say that I've proven it because I haven't. Um, uh, the professor up at Yale uh, definitely believes the Bay of Juan Ponce was Tampa Bay. They all three. There's no question about that, and that's huge. Well, after because looking most, at your map, what I mean, what's the dispute? It's, well, there's that's <laughs> right, you know, it's and it's not me, it's the map that's doing yeah, the talking. It's pretty uh, obvious. But but the uh but the, they they like the theory that it was in that the landing was in old Tampa Bay, but they're not gonna say I've proven that it's there because I haven't. I even I am not claiming that. So uh yeah, they're endorsing it, they're writing a little quotes to put on my jacket of my book. Uh but they're not going to say he proved they landed there. He's going to say they're going to say, say things like it was uh, definite that Juan Ponce, uh, that the Bay of Juan Ponce was Tampa Bay. The maps are breakthrough research uh, uh, that the uh, uh, that the identification of Rio de la Paz as Charlotte Harbor is almost certain, you know, that kind of thing. So about as, as much as you can expect anybody to say based on, Frankly, a bunch of circumstantial evidence. That's 
good enough for me. I just I just had an idea how we're going to make this theory famous. We're going to start another festival like Gasparilla, and we're going to recreate it. And we're going to offer people beer and food, and then, They'll then come. everybody will know about it. They'll come. <laughs> well, thanks so much. I hope that I have a chance to talk to you again because I feel like I've kind of become your friend. And well, thank you. Thank you. I feel very much the same. If you ever get over this way, come see me. I'll show you my maps. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see him. As soon as this stinking virus goes away, I'm I'm definitely going to take you out for a beard and we'll take a look at him. Uh, you've got a deal. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much. I really. It was great. Great to talk to you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. It's the Dave the Lawyer podcast.